hey, glad to be with you today for church. And uh, if that's you with the vacuum, thank you for putting it down. That's awesome. Uh, you know what? I'm so glad that we can be together for church in this way. And I wanted to just remind you, next weekend is Easter. And I can't wait to celebrate the resurrection with you. Can I ask you to make a decision as a family, even now, just decide, all right, which service are we going to be celebrating with our church family for Easter? It's going to be Saturday night at 6, Sunday morning at 9, 11, or 1 p.m. And better yet, reach out to a neighbor or a friend. Maybe share the link to our website with a friend and let them know, hey, church next weekend, it's Easter, why don't you celebrate with us? We're doing a, a watch at the same time party uh, and that way we can continue to reach our community. I'm guessing there's some people in your life that really need the love of God right now. And maybe because it's Easter weekend, there might be an openness to uh, experiencing that maybe even like never before. So share about Easter at Center Point next weekend. I'm going to be bringing a message and the start of a series called Lifted. And I think that there's a lot of spirits, a lot of hearts that need to be lifted right now. And I think that maybe Easter would be a great time for you to invite somebody. Hey, I also want to just say real quick congratulations. Because you survived the panquake. That's right, that's right. We all felt that little, uh, that little tremble. It lasted all of like three seconds. It was an earthquake during a pandemic that makes it a panquake and we all survived. Come on, that was funny. <laughs> but it's important that we are able to let ourselves laugh, you know, and be a little silly because otherwise times are just too tense. So let's let, let ourselves loosen up and, and laugh just a little bit. The message I want to share with you today is the tables have turned. So why don't you just say out loud, the tables have turned. Yeah, that's the title of the message. And uh, here, here's kind of what I mean by that. I mean, usually we all gather here and we experience a great time of worship together uh, for our weekend experience of church. But now the tables have turned and it's at your house instead. And it's actually kind of exciting what God's revealing in the middle of this. He's revealing that it is very much a possibility that we can experience his goodness anywhere. And I'm so grateful that we are experiencing his goodness in our homes, maybe like never before. And I've been praying for you that when we do gather this way around your tables, as the tables have turned, that you'd experience an explosion of the love of God and the power of God and even his anointing in your own homes so that we can continue to experience uh, church together in this way. Uh, the scripture that is the kind of basis for this series that we've been doing is Romans 12, 11. It says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And my guess is that uh, this season that we've been in, a crisis, a pandemic, it's probably calling out a faithfulness in prayer in a lot of us, maybe like never before. I mean, it, by necessity, right? Some of us are discovering that there's something about prayer, something about being able to commune with God that gives us the strength to make it when it's so hard otherwise. And I'm hoping that this lesson that we're all learning, the value of being faithful in prayer, will carry on with us long after this crisis is over. Because really there's nothing better than living a life where you're faithful in prayer, not because you have to, but because times are desperate, but because you want to, because you've discovered how good God is. 
That's what I'm praying for, for you. So speaking about being faithful in prayer, uh, there's an artist from the late 1900s, early, uh, early 1900s rather, his name is George Rouault. He's uh, an impressionist painter. He was a, a man of prayer. He was faithful in prayer. Uh, and, and he was an artist who, who loved to paint, and especially he loved to paint uh, pictures of Jesus. And his style was very simple. It was always marked by these iridescent, glowing images. But it really was Jesus that he loved to paint the most. Check this out. So there's a painting of Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. And there's another painting of Jesus healing a leper. Here's another painting he made of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples who were wondering where he was. And there's Jesus asking the little children to come to him so that he could bless them. And there's the painting of Jesus giving his life on the cross for us. And as he gave his life for us, Roal painted hundreds of paintings like this one of the cross just trying to convey something of the majesty of Jesus Christ and his great love and he would always paint that glow around the face of of Christ just evidence of the radiance of God and who Jesus is and even when he began painting the reality of the suffering of Jesus he intended to do so with a sense of the passion and love that flowed through Jesus he painted these intense paintings that really left such an impression. And you know, Roal actually painted thousands of paintings of Jesus. And when people asked him, why do you have such an obsession with painting these images of Christ? His answer was, uh, my life's goal is to paint a portrait of Christ so moving that whoever looks on it will be immediately converted okay so okay so listen the quarantine craziness gets me like ah i gotta bring an accent in my sermon actually some of you who know me know that i never needed an excuse to bring an accent in a sermon <laughs> but i just i love that that quote that you know why do you paint all these paintings of jesus and these his words my life's goal is to paint an image of christ so moving Whoever looks on it would be immediately converted. And I love it because it speaks to me of zeal. Like a zeal, a zeal to, to see God glorified. And that's what this series has really been about. And I want us to just think about this together. Uh, the love and mercy of Jesus. I mean, that is what Roal was attempting to convey. The love and mercy and power of Jesus. Because he knew the difference that the love and power and mercy of Jesus had made in his life. And I know the love and mercy and power of Jesus has made such a difference in my life, changed me completely. And, and many of us who are believers know the love and power and mercy of Jesus has changed us altogether. And I just want to speak to you, though, if maybe this is all kind of new for you. I mean, uh, listening to a sermon, being a part of a, a church gathering, even if it is online, I, maybe this is new for you, but I want you to know this. At the heart of it, it is an opportunity to know the love and mercy and power of Jesus. And I have a, a sense of zeal to see to it that, that you would know about that love and mercy and power uh, of Jesus. 
You know, there is one moment, though, in the life of Jesus that when you read about it uh, in the Gospel of John and the other two Gospels where this is mentioned, it doesn't immediately look like love and mercy. I mean, there's this moment that's recorded in in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And I want us to turn there now and read it together. So open your Bible, find that Bible, open it up to John, chapter 2. And as you're turning to John, chapter 2, here's the backdrop. Here's what had been happening. This is early in the Gospel of John. And the moment before what we're about to read was Jesus showing up at a wedding in Cana. And they ran out of wine, and Jesus did this incredible miracle full of love and mercy. He converted the water into wine so that the party could continue. And I I love that. I love the zeal that Jesus had to demonstrate a, a prophetic picture of what he always has wanted is for people to be able to come to that wedding feast moment and celebrate. It's a prophetic picture of the invitation that he has for you to come to his great wedding feast. But that happened. Jesus is celebrating, does this amazing miracle at Cana, and then, uh, next thing we know, uh, John chapter 2 continues in this way. Let's turn there together now. John chapter 2 and in verse uh, 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Why don't you read that last sentence out loud with me? Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. You know, sometimes people (laughs) will take this particular verse of scripture and say, see, you shouldn't be selling those t-shirts at church. (laughs) That would really be taking this verse of scripture way out of context. That's not what it was about. But it is an important moment because of of what it signifies. And just reading the the scripture in its context, I want you to see with me what it's actually about. I mean, first of all, you just got to see, the obvious is that Jesus was provoked. And and part of it, it just may be that, that Jesus, because he knows who he is, he knows he is the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the one who would be taking away the sins of the world because he was the perfect sacrifice. Maybe it was provoking to him to see all of these substitute sacrifices still there. I mean, that was part of the reality of of why Jesus was provoked in this moment. But I think part of what's happening is Jesus is, is looking at how this moment is taking place and how people are dealing with it. And he, he's provoked because what was intended to be a truly sacred moment had become something kind of superficial. It, Jesus is in this moment dealing with the reality that what was intended to be uh, a, a relational engagement with the living God had become something of a empty religious ritual for many. It's provoking to Jesus because he can see that what was intended to be 
a, a transcendent experience of, of truth had become a transaction. I mean, that's really what's taking place here. It's just become transactional. And I think part of what Jesus was condemning as he turned those tables was the transactional, superficial, empty form of religious ritual that doesn't really do anything for anyone's hearts. Like Jesus was saying, I'm turning the tables on that. You know, it's true that the Old Testament law commanded the people to come to Jerusalem and bring a sacrifice. But it was never intended to become a mere transaction. And so the tables have turned in this moment. But the other thing that I think might have provoked Jesus was not just what was happening, but where it was happening. Because where it was happening was the temple courts, otherwise referred to as the court of the Gentiles. And this is a particularly important place for the Jewish temple. So in the Jewish temple, uh, only the good Jewish believers were allowed to come into the temple proper. The Gentiles, that is everybody else, was only allowed to come into the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles, the temple courts. And what had been happening, as we have seen now in the scripture, is that so much of that space in the temple courts that was supposed to be for all of those Gentiles, everybody else who didn't quite know the living God well yet, wasn't a believer, so to speak, yet it was becoming cramped and it was being misused. It was now being used as a place to sell the sacrificial animals. And I think it was partly just the misuse of the space that Jesus was reacting to uh, in, in this moment. This place was meant to be a place for the Gentiles to pray, not a place for goats and cattle to be sold uh, as, as sacrifice. And so, as I'm reading this, I, I'm, I'm reminded that this scripture is in John, it's also in Mark, it's in Matthew. And the way M uh, Mark puts it, in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, same story, but Mark just adds uh, another, another phrase. It says in Mark eleven seventeen, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Again, hear the phrase that Jesus uses, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And, and Jesus wanted to make sure that this place would, would be available for all the nations. And when the phrase all nations is used, it's not referring to a political entity of a state. It's talking about all the different kinds of people. And Jesus was in a sense saying, look, this is their place. This is the place for them to be able to come and pray. It's to be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus loved that there was a place for all of these people to gather, especially the people who were not the good Jewish people, not the close to God believers. And uh, he was incensed and provoked by the misuse of the place. This past week, uh, I spent some time doing some cleaning. I was cleaning up my garage. And while I was doing that, uh, 
my wife Anne asked me if I would, you know, consider building a shoe rack. We had an older uh, shoe rack, the shoes would always fall off of it, kind of annoying. So I decided I would do it, build a nice new uh, shoe rack. And uh, while I was doing that, I had to set aside all of the shoes and boots. And uh, while I was setting aside all the different shoes and boots, I discovered something. <laughs> and I had a reaction to it that was a little bit like Jesus's. Perfectly nice work boots. But wait, what is this? What's inside of my boots? This is disgusting. A, wait, a bird's nest in my boots? Gross. Disgusting. Disgusting. This is not what these things are for. Get out. Get out. Ah! This disgusting. not what these boots were for. Ew. All right. Well, listen, if some of your adult sensibilities are a little bit offended by the silliness that I just uh, imposed upon you, listen, I didn't only have you in, in mind. I know that we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of our younger friends joining in on these weekend services at home, so I wanted to make sure that I could catch everybody's attention. But I did. I felt a little bit, uh, maybe a tiny bit of what Jesus might have been feeling. I mean, yes, that really happened. I discovered bird's nest in my boots. Maybe that's a sign that I haven't been doing enough outside work with my boots. <laughs> but it was, it, it was, it was uh, provoking me. How dare they do that? In, in a sense, when Jesus comes into the temple that is meant to be this place for the Gentiles to gather a house of prayer for all nations and sees that instead it's, it's being used up by people selling these substitute sacrifices, he's provoked. He said it. In verse 17, look at it again. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah 56 almost verbatim. And Isaiah 56 casts this vision of the courts of God being a place where those far from God could come and gather together. That it wouldn't only be about the good religious people having their place. That it would be a, a heart to welcome those who were making their way toward God that wouldn't normally be thought of as included. And Jesus was passionate about that. But, but he's passionate about it being a house of prayer. And to any extent, it had become a place of empty, transactional, superficial religiosity. He said, I'm not having it. And I think he's still saying that. Any way in which this house would ever become something of a superficial, go through the motions, just click through it, make it happen, be done kind of an experience. I think he's saying, I'm done with it. I want it to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. So let's talk about prayer. We began this message from Romans 12, 11 with that calling to be faithful in prayer. And Jesus says, I want my house to be a house of prayer for all nations. And prayer 
is uh, something in particular. We need to be thoughtful about that together. The essence of prayer is not rattling off a, a bunch of words, sort of you know, sending up our, our shopping list to the cosmic genie or something like that. Uh, prayer is never meant to be a simple rote recitation of a beautiful poem that has God-directed words. That's not really what prayer was meant to be. I mean, we, we can experience God through those kinds of things, letting our requests be known and, and sharing a, a, a word that we've memorized. But the essence of prayer is not those things. The essence of prayer is an experience of God's presence. The essence of prayer is encounter with God. That's the essence of prayer. And Jesus is in a very real way saying, that's what I want my house to be about. Real experience of the presence of God. Real experience of the power of God. Real encounter with Holy Spirit flowing and moving. Real experience with the goodness of God. Real experience with Jesus. That's what he wants his house to be about. And I hear it and I say, yes, Lord. Okay, so this is the moment where Jesus has turned the tables. And in John chapter 2, we go back there to where we had read at the beginning. John chapter 2, it said again in verse 17, his disciples, after they saw this, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want you to just say those words one more time. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, if you remember from earlier in this series, zeal is a fervent expressivity, a passionate enthusiasm in service of a specific objective or cause. And as the disciples saw Jesus turning those tables and driving out those sacrificial animals. And all they could think of was to say was, this is the scriptures being fulfilled. What those prophets had said, zeal for the house of God will consume me. And uh, there's a zeal for God's house that Jesus had. And yes, he was quoting Psalm 69. But he is giving us evidence of what God's heart is for God's house. And I don't know about you, but as I follow Jesus, I want to follow him into everything that he's demonstrated for me. And that includes, I want to follow him into a zeal for the house of God. And I hope that you would too, that you would decide, I'm going to follow Jesus into a zeal for the house of God. And the reason why a zeal for the house of God matters is because what's available in God's house? In God's house, there's hope for people who are walking in despair. In God's house, there's healing for people who are hurting. In God's house, there's salvation for people who've become aware that we're sinners and, and we can't fix ourselves. In God's house, there is light for anybody who's stuck in darkness. In God's house, there is strength for those of us who find ourselves feeling weak. In God's house, there's love. In God's house, there's everything we need through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to follow Jesus into real zeal for God's house. You know, speaking of 
zeal for God's house and picturing Jesus coming and turning over the tables and making a scene there. There's actually been uh, quite a scene at the courts of Centerpoint Church, so to speak. And let me tell you about that. About a year and a half ago, uh, we agreed together that we would do our all for the one, the one who would be far from God and, and that we would do our all and we would do, do what God would call us to do. And that what it meant was that we would be those who would be willing to go and walk across the street, reach out to our neighbors so that they might know that God's love and mercy and power are real. It meant that we would do our all, that we would find ways to, to serve one another in the body of Christ, to see that it would be built up, the church body built up. And part of that included that we would expand our worship center, the temple courts, so to speak, of Centerpoint Church, so that when we reached the one, we could bring them home like that good shepherd brings home that, that one sheep that he goes after to rescue. And so that was something we embraced. And many of you have been wondering, well, before all of this COVID-19 stuff happened, we were about to begin that project. What's going on with that? Well, I want you to know that just because there has been a crisis, the vision that we have embraced from God hasn't stopped. That just because there's been a pandemic, our expansion project hasn't stopped. And in fact, the timing is kind of good. While we've all been home, the work has begun. And while we've been at home, there's been quite a scene taking place in the courts of Centerpoint Church. I want you to check this out with me. So there we are in front, and if you look there, what you're looking at is the sound booth that's usually behind a wall. The wall's been torn down. It's gone. The wall's been busted out. The temporary wall has been put in. All of the stucco's been taken down. The, the, all of the studs are being exposed and torn out, and the work of expansion is continuing. This project that we began out of a zeal for the house of God is continuing. And this is our vision that, that in the days to come, when all of this craziness settles down, we're going to begin to gather again. It might be a few weeks, it might be a couple months, who knows, but it's going to happen. The ice is going to thaw and we're going to be together. And not only that, but I don't know if you're feeling what I'm feeling, but I'm feeling a, a, a revival springing up. And part of what that means is that there's going to need to be ample space for us to gather together in God's house. And that we're going to need to make sure that those temple courts are ready. And so we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> and as I'm, I'm thinking about that, I know that many of us feel what I'm feeling. And we're feeling like, man, I, I can't wait for that, that opportunity to gather together again with my family, my church family, my Centerpoint Church family. And... Part of that is a reflection of what God birthed in his word. Yes, we know that Revelation 21 says, yes, and the dwelling of God is among man. We know that we are the temple. But we also know we've been called by God to gather together. And it's part of this ancient heartbeat expressed in Psalm 84 where it says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Listen, I want to speak to those of you who maybe this is new for you. And I want to tell you that there is a way to be right with God. 
God wants for you to have the peace that comes from knowing him. God wants for you to have the confidence that you are right with God. But that doesn't happen by you finally doing everything right. That happens by you coming to the one who did everything right on your behalf. And ultimately what Jesus did was the complete right act that needed to be done. He went to the cross. And before he went to the cross, in John chapter 1, the very beginning, this is what it says about Jesus. It said, John 1, 12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I'm asking you today to consider whether that has happened for you, whether you've had a moment where you finally received Jesus. What I mean is received him as your savior. Not just, res not just said, well, church is interesting or Jesus seemed like a good teacher back in the day, but instead personally to receive him as your savior, your Lord. And, and to all who believed in his name. Have you had a moment where you've believed in the name of Jesus? Because the scriptures say that there's one name given under heaven by which all people must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And so here and now, right in this moment, wherever you're watching, wherever you are gathering together with me, there is an opportunity for you to believe in the name of Jesus and experience the forgiveness of your sins and then you receive the gift of salvation, eternal life. This is a gift. It's not forced on you. It's offered to you. Right now, I want you to pray with me. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that right now you would wake some of us up spiritually. I pray, God, that right now you would allow some of us to wake up to the reality that we need you. God, that we need your love, your mercy, and your power in our lives. And while we're all praying together, you're praying right now, and maybe you don't even know what that actually means yet it's so new for you but something's waking up inside you're spiritually waking up Jesus used the language of being born again to describe this but what you need to do in this moment is to receive him to believe in his name and so right now if you are ready to say yes to Jesus to receive him and all that he brings the forgiveness of sins the gift of eternal salvation the here and now hope and help and strength of his mercy, love and power. If you're ready to receive him in this moment, I want you to simply say, Jesus Christ, I believe in you. Just say it out loud right where you are. Jesus Christ, I believe in you. Say it again with me. Jesus Christ, I believe in you.